Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Newman, and you're listening to If I Made a Podcast, where we talk about what it takes to build your business from the ground up without sacrificing your creativity along the way. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining If I Made a Podcast. Um, I'm here with the lovely Mary McLeod. She's joining us again today to kind of take you through how If I Made came to be. If you tuned in to last week's episode, we kind of gave you a little bit of the backstory of when we started partnering with different experts on courses. So Pricing for Creas with Shanna Skidmore, The Nature of Wedding Floral Design with Sarah Winward. This was kind of the first year of If I Made. And if you didn't check out that episode, I highly recommend it because it kind of gives you a nice backstory to where we are today. But some of you after that episode may be thinking, well, that's great. You talked to, you know, it sounds like everything was just happened so easily and just bam, 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 you're able to build a business. And I wish that was the case, but that's not the story. There's There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that nobody really talks about when people are building a business. So, yep, we're going to get into the dirty. It was quite the shit show. Yeah. The behind the scenes, nasty biz that (laughs) you guys have been dying to hear for so long. But really, it is the stuff that people don't think about when they get into a business. So they think about you know, I want to be a florist. This sounds amazing. I'm going to be a florist. I'm going to play with flowers all day. It's going to be beautiful. Guess what? The majority of the time, you're cleaning buckets. You're putting things away. You're up until 3 Creating proposals. Creating proposals. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. So Emily has n- had never created an online course before. Nope. She had built a business, mm-hmm. tried other businesses. She knew how to do that part. But the how to do an online course, it wasn't a blog. I mean, it was something totally new. So how did you figure out what to do? You know, where did you go? Mm -hmm. Who did you learn from? How did we get to the point where we are now where we're still trying new things every day? So, yeah. So kind of like what we referenced in earlier episodes, you know, rather than starting from scratch, going to a completely new industry, I started with my means, what I knew. And this is what I knew. I had worked in production, um, even though I was in front of the camera when I was younger as a model, I was immersed in production. I learned a lot about photography, hair, makeup, lighting. That world felt very familiar to me, even though I wasn't skilled in necessarily being a photographer or being a lighting expert. I was very familiar with it. And that really set me up well when I launched Once Wed and we started creating our own content. So with If I Made, video was a brand new kind of, you know, territory for us. Um, And I naively assumed, okay, I got photography. We've been shooting for years. Video is going to be a breeze. And it wasn't. There was a huge learning curve. And anyone that's worked in video knows that it's so much more than taking a photo, multiple camera angles. You're having to deal with audio, editing and posts. It's just, it's a completely different skill set. So with that first course, we made a lot of mistakes using one camera angle with two people would not suggest that. I wouldn't even suggest that with one person. That multiple, those two camera angles are going to be your saving grace in post. Otherwise, you're having to re-record a lot of content or show content that's not that great. So definitely the biggest lesson, which seems so obvious now, is you want multiple camera angles when you're recording. And that's whether you're recording with an iPhone or whether you're recording with a red camera. Something else too that I would highly suggest is a quiet studio space. Once again, seems super obvious. Not to me, because we got there. We decided to film in a studio next to a railroad. You just tried to, you know, film in between the train, but the train was not cooperative. It was on no schedule. schedule. It was random. And the reason I was doing that is because I was trying to save money, right? A friend of a friend was working in, you know, 
leased that space. She gave it to me for a really good deal. And that's one of those situations that my, you know, going into it, I had good intentions, but there is this kind of big outlying factor that I had no control over. So obviously you want quiet studio space. One of the things that I recommend to people that's worked out really well for us is when you're starting out, studio space is expensive. I mean, that's why I was trying to kind of barter with a friend. So I actually suggest using Airbnbs as studio space. It's really inexpensive. So instead of having to pay $800 to $1,000, depending on your city and where you're based, an Airbnb can be $100, $200 a night. Now, these are some of the things you want to be on the lookout for. Sometimes in the Airbnb policies, they say that you can't film in their space. Typically, you're filming in natural light. So you want to make sure that the space has a lot of natural light. And if you're renting a space that is in an apartment building or a condominium or next to a busy roadway, you want to look at Google Maps. You know, where is this located? Is this a house in a quiet neighborhood that's detached? Your chances of not having noise are probably pretty low. Is it in the middle of, you know, New York City on the third floor and you have, you know, a FedEx delivery center across the street from it? Probably not the best space to film. You also don't want to be on the bottom floor because then people are walking and dragging things on the top. So... Yeah. But Airbnbs are a great way to film and give you studio space at a cost that's substantially lower than traditional studio space. One of the things that we've learned about sound is there are studios specifically that are kind of soundproof. So but they're more expensive. And we've just kind of learned that it doesn't have to be 100 percent quiet all the time. Every you know, in real life, there are ambient noises. In our courses, obviously, we don't want a lot of noise going on or trains going by, but we're our goal isn't to get perfect sound because to do that, kind of the, the benefits, there's not enough benefits to us trying to achieve that. So something that, you know, if you're concerned about it, drive by the space, you know, look at Google Maps, make sure that it's going to be a situation where you're not having to worry about a consistent loud noise. Another thing that we learned, I feel like along the way was Although video was difficult and a big learning curve, it's actually what our students wanted the most of. And writing courses was substantially more of a time suck. It just took a lot longer. We had to go through rounds and rounds of revisions. It just it seemed like the more cost effective route up front. You know, you're not spending all the money on the film crew Mm -hmm. and editing, but that's not true. You have to think of whatever venture you're going in the long term. Yes, it might be more of an upfront cost, but over time, once you factor in labor and revisions and everything like that, you have to think about what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck and save you time because that's what our students wanted was video. And it's true. And I think it also goes back to, you know, start with your means. If you love writing and you are can put out a bunch of content on paper, go for it. But Anyone who knows me knows that I I am not a writer. It is not my strength. I don't enjoy doing it. So it was like multiple things were pointing us towards video. It's what our audience wanted. The person who started the business is a terrible writer. <laughs> and it was just a big time <laughs> commitment. I mean, it's the truth. Yeah, it's not my strength. So it's like if you are, you know, we are content strategists could write 50 courses a year if she wanted to. She just, that is how her brain works. It is what her strengths are in. She can knock it out. But for the majority of us, right, if writing isn't your strength, video is the way to go. And we've just found that's how creatives like learning best. Sitting down and reading a PDF is just not their jam. Also think about the fact that we live 
I think I read a quote the other day that says Mark Zuckerberg thinks that it was like, I don't know, 2020, probably everything on Facebook will be a video. So think about the things that you can reuse. If you're already doing video, you can use that for marketing. You can cut things up. You're not having to make new stuff over and over again. So, you know, always just thinking about in the back of your mind, no matter what business you're in, what are you putting your time into that mm. can that's the most valuable use? Yeah. Maximizing your time, capitalizing on your time. What can you repurpose? What can you repackage? And that is something that's so beautiful about video is it can be reused in so many different ways. And, you know, even four years ago compared to now, I feel like video is even more important. You know, four years ago, people actually weren't creating a lot of video for Instagram at that point or even for ads. And I feel like nowadays, you know, any campaign that's launching video is a huge part of it. So just another example of, you know, having to shift and change based on what the market, where the market is going as well. And how do you stay relevant? So, you know, if you've taken some of our If I May courses, you've probably noticed this kind of change in focusing more pretty much all on video. We do have some written course, you know, there are elements of the course that are written. We offer worksheets. Sometimes things just have to be expressed on a PDF and can't be shown visually. But I would say, you know, 90% of our courses now are video. So that was a big learning curve. We started off writing courses and then we moved to filming courses. So besides just filming and video, you had to think about, this is something I think a lot of people don't think about is course delivery. How do you get the courses to people? Because it's not as simple as just posting it on YouTube and sending a link because then it's not protected. Then anybody can get it. And you worked really hard on something. So how did you learn about course delivery and what was going to work for what you guys were creating at the time? Yeah. So keep in mind, you know, four years ago, there weren't all these platforms available like Teachable that were specifically created for hosting courses. So we had to get creative in how do we make content accessible to our students, but also protect it, protect it for our brand, but also for our artists, our creators. So initially with our PDF courses, it was a matter of finding a platform where we could host the PDF securely without illegal sharing. And we stumbled upon a platform essentially called Lock Lizard, which would allow you to it's secure. It's a secure PDF reader, essentially. So we had a solution for the PDF and we then had to find a solution for the video. And initially we used Vimeo to host our video content. Now, there's pros and cons to every platform out there. There's no one perfect platform. We actually ended up having to build it for ourselves But initially, you know, the downside of Vimeo is once you have a username and password, it can be shared with anyone. There wasn't a way for us to restrict it to just one user. And the downside of the PDF reader was that it was uh, secure on that specific device. So unfortunately, if you downloaded it on your laptop, you couldn't watch it on your phone. Now, starting with OneSweat, you know, 13 years ago, through our analytics, I saw the rapid change from device use going from laptop desktop to being majority mobile. I mean, when I started OneSwed, mobile was 10%. By the time we sold OneSwed back in, you know, fall of 2018, 80% of our traffic was on mobile. Just a huge shift. So we knew long term that the Lock Lizard solution wasn't going to be the best one because it really limited how people could take our courses. They could take it on their phone, but then it was just limited to their phone. A lot of our students are in transition, right? They're a mom during the day and running a business at night. They have a full-time job during the day and they're taking courses in the train and then they're taking it in bed at night on their iPad. 
So we knew that flexibility in devices was going to be really important. So that's kind of after, you know, but once again, not wanting to go all in right away and not even having the resources to go all in, we kind of had to work with what we had. And we eventually built a dashboard that allowed for us to secure the content, gave our students the opportunity to take our courses on multiple devices that was, and, you know, just accessible no matter what, take your courses at your own pace, which was something that was also really important to us. Something else that we had to figure out at the beginning was website. So not being a developer, I've learned over the years that I want to try to use an out-of-the-box option as much as possible. Anytime you code something custom, anytime you hack something to make it your own, it creates a situation where you're dependent on a developer if you can't fix it yourself. And one of the things that I really love about our team that I just think is amazing is we're very agile. We can pretty much fix 99% of what we use, which is an unbelievable thing. It allows us to move fast. It allows us to make mistakes. When we make mistakes, we can fix them quickly. We can try ideas quickly. We're not having to wait on someone to finish something for us to move. So that's something I learned with OneSweat. I had a lot of custom development work done at the beginning. And over the years, I've really tried to use as many out-of-the-box options as possible, less expensive. There's less time involved. There's a support team that can fix it that's not your own. There's just a lot of benefits to using something that's not custom. Now, for our dashboard, we had to do that. But for our website, you know, we initially started working with Squarespace. And I love Squarespace for the majority of businesses. If you're a service-based business, Squarespace is an incredible platform. So I'm not saying that Squarespace isn't a great platform because I believe it is. But for what we were trying to do, it was very limiting. And I didn't have the budget to hire a designer and a developer. And at that time, we only had a designer. She was an incredible designer, but she her background was not in coding and development. So I had to find a solution where we could build websites the way we wanted to without having to hire a developer. And at that time, there was a I was able to find this platform called Webflow, which is essentially it allows someone who is a designer has, you know, graphic design experience to be able to teach how teach themselves use this platform to build websites. It's not like instantaneous. You do have to learn the platform. But our designer who had no coding and development knowledge was able to begin building websites from scratch. It integrated with Shopify. It just integrated with all these third-party platforms that we were using as a business. So once again, I feel like as a business, you're constantly trying to find solutions that work for you. And a lot of times it's just doing the, the hard work of researching, asking around. I actually found Webflow through another startup owner here in Atlanta when I was telling him, this is what I'm struggling with. I don't want to hire a developer. And he was like, have you checked out Webflow? So Webflow has been a godsend for us. Now, for the majority of you, Squarespace is going to be a great option, something like Squarespace. But we love Webflow. Check it out. It's a great resource. So that's kind of on the tech side, hosting and delivering. I think I think it's really important to talk about the evolution of marketing, too, because when you first started, if I made marketing was a totally different beast than it is now. Like you said in our last episode, I think we sold 250 units of the first course by posting on Instagram and emailing two times. Everybody knows that is not the case anymore. Instagram works differently now. Everyone's on Instagram now. So it's flooded with people. There's there are a lot of people doing online courses. There's probably a lot of photographers or florists or cake designers as well that you're seeing on your feed. So it's a lot more competition in the marketplace. So marketing has been an ever evolving thing for us. Yeah. You know, the first year we were able to 
really heavily rely on Instagram, uh, an organic Instagram, I'm not talking about paid advertising through Instagram, just putting out posts. Stories wasn't a thing at this point. It was purely I don't posts. think paid advertising on Instagram even existed. Yeah, no, it's true. It probably didn't at that point. So we were really fortunate to be able to use that as a, a tool to really build our brand, to get the word out and to promote our courses. Towards the end of the year, though, I started noticing a big shift in the Instagram algorithm and it was making a huge impact on our ability to get the word out about our courses. And I knew internally, I feel like when you're a younger entrepreneur, and maybe this is just me, but when you reach those crossroads of uncertainty and discomfort and you know something's going on, you kind of have two choices. You can pretend and kind of, I think you can try to battle it in certain ways there are a lot of people who complain about Mm -hmm. instagram and they're just like this stinks this stinks this stinks but they're not i mean you have to accept the fact if something's not working it's not working don't sit and wait for it to go back yeah it's not going to go back if somebody's making money on an on one end of something Mm -hmm. it's never going to go back to what it was so you have to be able to be agile and change your direct you have to change your direction and figure out what you're going to do next you got to sit and wallow move yeah So this is something like a friction point, right? It was a friction point in our business where I was like, oh my goodness, we've relied solely on this one platform to sell courses. And now this platform is changing and there's nothing I can do about it. So what's the next move? And I knew for us, we really had to start building our email list. And this is something I would encourage for anyone, whether they're offering a service, whether they're offering a product, email. Now, this may not always be the case, but for now, it's the one thing that you kind of can own. Now, you can't control whether or not the email is necessarily received in someone's inbox. Anyone who works with email knows that there's sometimes things go to spam. Gmail has social folders. I mean, it. it's not a straightforward, I send an email and you're definitely going to see it. People actually have to open the email. They actually have to click the email. There's a lot of friction points involved with it. But with Instagram, relying solely on Instagram, we knew that that wasn't going to be a strategy for us over the long term and that we really had to shift our game plan. So I remember it clear as day. We had just launched our last course for the year. It did not go as well as we had expected for a couple of reasons. There was an election going on. The Instagram algorithm was changing. It was a scary time in the business because I could see what was happening and yet I didn't have a solution yet. So clear as day, it was Christmas Two weeks of Christmas, my team had it off and I just started researching everything I could about email, getting a setup in MailChimp, getting a setup in lead pages. How are we going to change? Because it was, we had to change everything. We had to change our entire marketing funnel and we had launches coming up in January or February, launches that we depended on. So I took that time and just essentially reworked our entire marketing funnel so that we were beginning to actually collect the database of our customers and our students without having to rely on Instagram. A few months later is when I came onto the team. I was actually hired as the project manager. And then around June that year, you realized that the biggest key to this new marketing technique was segmentation. And mm-hmm. MailChimp did not give us that capability. Yeah. And Mary, tell us a little bit more what you mean by segmentation. Yeah, segmentation means really focusing in on your different audiences. So emailing photographers about photography courses and florists about florist courses and not selling something to someone who's already bought it, mm-hmm. things like that. And or that it doesn't relate to, for instance, we didn't want to yeah. keep sending photography related to emails to people who are in the cake design world. It just didn't make sense. Yeah. So I was hired as a project manager that lasted uh, like three weeks. And then Emily was <laughs> like, hey, we need a new email marketing system. And here, figure it out. 
So I did research and figured out the one that I thought would work best for us because none of us knew anything about email marketing, really. I mean, Emily had emailed in the past with OneSwed, but she not didn't really. Not at this level, not no. with segmenting and getting really granular in how we're you know, marketing and reaching our audience and making sure that it's relevant for them. Because if it's not relevant, they're not going to open up in the emails. They're not going to click on the emails. They're not going to engage with our brand. Yeah. And all of that matters in the longevity of your marketing plan is Google will not deliver your emails if you have a bad reputation. So we needed to make sure that every email that was going out was designed for the person it was being delivered to. So I got into it and figured out that I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, Emily suggested using Infusionsoft. If you've ever looked at Infusionsoft, it's very difficult. A lot of people use it and it's great for them, but I didn't know what I was doing yet. So I looked and found one called Drip and it was, it worked in the way that my brain worked. And so that's what we've been using ever since. And we've been able to build our email list. I mean, it's, it was, it was about 200,000 people. I mean, we've edited it down, which we'll talk about in future episodes and why you want to do that. But We've gotten that many leads mm-hmm. over the past few years. And when I started, it was at 12,000, I think. Yeah. And when, you know, that that Christmas, when I was working through Christmas trying to find a solution, I mean, I think we had like a thousand emails, if that. Yeah. So, I remembered when you hired me, you were like, if you get it to 50,000 by Christmas, I'll give you a bonus. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that didn't happen, <laughs> by the way. So lean Christmas in the McLeod household. No, I'm just kidding. But Really, it was a learning curve and it still is every day. I mean, Emily and I had a call the other day. I had a panic moment because a lot of our emails are going to spam and it's because Google decides to do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. they Our reputation goes down if we send big blasts. So, we're, so you know, we're constantly having to mm-hmm. maneuver and change and there's no way that you can know all of that when you're starting a business, but you have to pay attention to what's going on, just like everything and else fo- in the business. And focus on what you can control. We yes. can't control if Google changes their algorithm. We can't control if Instagram changes their algorithm. There's nothing we can do about it. So spending any time complaining about it, focusing on it, whining about it. And I'm not, you know, I've had those moments too, but being 15 years into this journey of owning businesses, I know that is such a waste of time that all I can do is focus on what's in front of me and the things I can control. Yeah. Look at what, look up, you can Google it, look up what you can control in a certain situation. If it's subject lines and emails, if it's putting hashtags on your Instagram mm-hmm. post to get them to the Explorer feed, those are mm-hmm. the things that you can do. Trying shorter dimension graphics because they may be getting caught in people's spam filters. I there's, mean, there's, there's a lot more you can do in those moments of when you're feeling desperate, when you're feeling like, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to get myself out of this mess. Break it down into small steps. Focus on what you can do. Yeah. So we've talked about how you learned how to do video Mm -hmm. with no experience. We've talked about how we changed our marketing plan. Yeah. No email marketing experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had to pivot. We talked about delivering, hosting. talked about delivering and hosting, which was a new thing that we had no experience in. And one of the goals for us with this podcast is to continue to share things that we learn along the way. There's so much more that we're going to be sharing with you over the coming weeks, especially around, you know, creating an online course, because there really is so much involved in it. That's one of the things that our experts always tell us that we partner with when we're collaborating on those courses. It's just like, I had no idea how many small little things go into creating a course. And we're trying to make it feasible for you. If it is something that If it is the idea that you want to go with, the big idea that you have narrowed in on and you're like, all right, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to take my unique skill and teach it to people. We're trying to make it possible for Mm -hmm. you to get there by learning from our mistakes, our mistakes in the current market that we're in right now, which we have done lots of different markets now. So hopefully we can equip you with a lot of different tools. So 
taking all of the experiences that we've had yeah. um, or no experience, mm-hmm. how can we do this on a smaller budget, on a smaller scale? If again, this is the idea that you want to run with. Yeah. I think we'll talk about that next week. Definitely. That's how I started. It's totally possible. Now, granted, the market has changed, but that doesn't mean that, it you know, you still can't do it. And um, we're excited to be able to share with you some of the things you can do with a really low budget and still create an incredible course. Yeah, I think we have a downloadable in the show notes for that, Emily. That's true. Jumpstart your own online course with If I Made. Yeah, you will have some idea worksheets so you can work at that idea. If you're new mm-hmm. to the podcast and you haven't downloaded the worksheet, there's also favorite resources. So the thing, our go-tos when it comes to launching a course, as well as kind of our, our top saving, you know, cost saving tips for launching a course. What are things that you can do when you're on a budget? You know, now that we, when we launch courses internally, we, you know, we put a lot of production towards them, but we know of ways to be able to do it at a much lower cost that is more accessible and affordable for y'all. Yeah, we'll tell you the things that you can spend your money on and the things that you can save, save your, your money, save your money, save your pennies. Yep. Uh, great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> Hi there. Make sure to go to iTunes and rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so we can keep coming back to you because we want to know that you're listening. Bye.